You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Amen. I love the truth of that song. While you're standing, would you please take your Bibles? We're jumping right in this evening. Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 tonight. Genesis 9, and uh, we're going to be in the same passage we were in this morning. And uh, I know that that's a little bit different, but uh, sometimes you, you kind of come, you come to a principle and you, there's a lot of application you want to mention, and uh, you only have a certain amount of time. And so uh, I think the Lord was just kind of leading me to, to, to focus on this again um, Genesis chapter 9, and we'll begin reading verse 18. We'll read the same passage we did this morning. It says, and beginning verse 18, what I would like for us to do is let's just uh, read it together. And we'll begin reading in Genesis 9, 18. We'll all read it together out loud. Beginning in verse 18, ready, begin. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine, and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brethren without... And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered their nakedness of their father and their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood three hundred and fifty years, and all the days of Noah were nine hundred and fifty years, and he died." It's kind of a a strange end to a man who had a great life story for God. And we looked at it this morning, and I I will review some of that, but mostly spend tonight more on application this evening on a principle that I think could be a help to us. It's about unguarded moments. And we're all guilty. We have all faced unguarded moments, but it's our response to the unguarded moment that makes the difference. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the, uh, the time that you give us tonight. We pray that you bless the reading of your word. We pray that you'd help us as we open it and look at it, that you'd speak through your Holy Spirit to our hearts and help us to see where uh, the applications can maybe apply to us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So this morning, we looked at the last account from Noah's life and learned some lessons from it. And, And tonight, I'd like to look at the passage again and and, and get into some more application because, I mean, every story and every principle in God's word is worth revisiting. And uh, this morning's could really be especially helpful, I think. And, and before, though, you tune, tune it out, let me remind you of the importance of calling to remembrance the things that we've learned. Second uh, Peter, and Peter wrote, Second Peter 3, 1, he said, This second epistle, beloved, now I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And, and that folk, the pra- phrase that I want to focus on or just reiterate is that as Peter was writing that epistle, it's the second letter he had written, and he said, I write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. And he says, I'm, I want you to call to remembrance the words of the Holy Prophets, which would have been the old, our Old Testament, but also the words of the Apostles, which, was, which were the new words that, G, that God was, was using the Apostles to give them. 
And so don't ever get to the point. I mean, if you know, if you've been saved any length of time, then you'll rarely hear anything new that you haven't heard before. I mean, very rarely will something be preached that you haven't heard before. Most Bible principles come down to certain themes or motifs that are fleshed out in different ways. I mean, just for instance, think about this morning's message. It's about Noah's failure, which is, if we had an umbrella, we would call that sin. It's also about his response to the sin, which we would say is obedience or disobedience. And then God's response to his response or his son's responses which is blessing or cursing. And in many ways, you hear a story that is a different story than another, but in many ways, those themes are repeated thousands of times in the, in the Bible. And so the repetition, if, if, if God didn't think repetition was, was worth it for us, then the Bible would, would have many more themes than it has. It would have many, uh, maybe even fewer stories and, and more themes because there'd be a lot a lot more or a lot less to cover, it must be easy to forget if we're reminded that we need to remember. And so another thought is that repetition is the key to learning and only the few rarely gifted folks can learn something the very first time. Most of us need to be shown something multiple times. Most of us need to practice something most, most time or multiple times for muscle memory. Or most of us need someone to show us how. We need someone to teach us multiple times. And you might think that you don't need to be reminded, but I just want to encourage you, if that's your mentality, you either don't think accurately about yourself as a human being or you don't think accurately about God's word because it clearly teaches the value of repetition. So when I revisit a truth on a Sunday evening, I just want to encourage you to be engaged. Uh, because I do think at many times as well that if we go through a whole day and we have one thought that we're chewing on, we might get more out of that sometimes. It's kind of like the idea of meditation. If you just meditate on one verse, sometimes you get more out of that one verse than you do if you read 10 chapters in your Bible and you don't really chew on it. So according to the Bible, we need the process of revisiting God's word. And as a review for those who may not have been in the service this morning, our focus was on Noah and his unguarded moment here in Genesis 9. And tonight I want to say it this way, unguarded moments can lead to immeasurable consequences. Unguarded moments, when we let our guard down and we stop being on guard, we stop being vigilant, we stop being sober, and we stop, start, stop being diligent, those unguarded moments in our lives can lead to immeasurable consequences. But it's not just the unguarded moment, it's really our response to the unguarded moment. And an incorrect response to an unguarded moment can lead to immeasurable consequences. But a right response to, to unguarded moments can lead to immeasurable blessings. And that's really what we looked at this morning. Let me illustrate it this way. Just a couple of things that I saw this week. And it'll be a different kind of message. Maybe more practical than usual. But I saw a news headline about a high school football player in South Texas. And his name is Emmanuel Duran. And he's a defensive lineman. He was actually the player of the year in his district last season. His team was in a playoff game this past week when he was penalized for roughing the passer. And if you know anything about football, then you know that as if quarterback is throwing and they release the ball and you tackle them late or you do more than you probably should have to just maybe try to hurt them a little bit, that's a roughing the passer penalty. And he got called a 15-yard penalty for roughing the passer. But his reaction to getting the penalty was extremely, we'll say, negative. And he, he got upset, he got angry, he probably uh, used some words he shouldn't have. So another flag came in, and this time the flag was for an unsportsmanlike penalty. So on top of the 15-yard roughing the passer penalty, he now has another 15 yards for unsportsmanlike conduct. So he basically, at this point, is guilty of giving the other team 30 free yards. So his team came and they, they pulled him off the field and helped him to try to cool down. And so the referee stands there and, and he stands up and he said, personal foul on the defense, roughing the passer, 15-yard penalty, and an unsportsmanlike conduct. I don't know if that's actually, it, it looks official though. Unsportsmanlike conduct or flying an airplane penalty on the defense, the same player, number 88. Um, and that player has been ejected from the game. 
So at that point, Emmanuel did not know he had been ejected. This is the first time he's heard of it. So, and you can, you could get on the video, don't do it now, or that light, may lightning strike in this building. If you watch videos, when I refer to videos. At this point, Emmanuel Duran ran back onto the field without his helmet on and aimed directly for the referee and body slammed the referee right there on the football field. I thought you were going to show us what that looked like. Is that what you were doing? Yeah. He looked down and he was about to come. Body slammed the referee right on the football field in front of the stadium and everything. So his teammates, of course, they come and grab him and, and take him off the field. And the other referees go check on the referee that got body slammed, who, by the way, received a concussion from it. Four policemen come on the field and escort this guy, this young man, 18 years old, is just completely outside of his mind at this point, upset. They escort him off the field, and not much longer after that, they arrested him for a Class A assault. And as if that wasn't enough, then they, they said that he was out of the rest of the playoffs because his team had won the game, but he's out of the rest of the playoffs. And oh, by the way, his team is disqualified from the rest of the playoffs for his actions. And that makes me just want to clap, first of all, that, that somebody was willing to hand out some serious consequences in this day and age. But second, a, a roughing the passer penalty happens in football sometimes. It happens. You make a mistake and you hit the quarterback late and, and you just accept the penalty and you, and you live to play another down. The bigger mistake, though, was the reaction to the penalty and then the reaction to the ejection. Listen, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody lets their guard down at times. That's part of being human, but it's our response to the moment that makes the difference. That's where Emmanuel Duran made his mistake. It's not the fact that he let his guard down and he did something he shouldn't have as a foolish penalty. It's that his response after the fact was his big mistake. Another illustration that I was thinking of this, this week is in driving. Let's just say that you're driving down Highway 11 and you're going south toward Canton and you notice another car driving on Highway 11 coming north. And as you get closer to the car, you take your eyes off the road for just a minute. A minute. You look down you, you, to turn, change the radio station because you can't handle that Christmas song one more time already. And when you look back up, you've crossed the center line and you're about to have a head-on collision. It's an unguarded moment. But see, it's in the instant before the collision that your response to the unguarded moment will make the difference. It's that, that is where the difference is made. It's not in that you let your guard down. At that point, you can't help the fact that you're in that position. It's what you do in that moment. And if you choose not to adjust course, you'll likely have a head-on crash. But if you overcorrect, then you'll likely easily, you could easily roll your vehicle. But if you move back into your lane without panicking at the right speed and the right quickness without overreacting, you could avoid major catastrophe. And listen, it is not necessarily the moment of the letdown. It's not the unguarded moment that tends to, to trip us up. We're going to have those. We will face those in our lives because we're human. It's, it, it's not the, the unguarded moment itself. It's our response to the moment. And now listen, I know of, of avoiding the unguarded moment, avoiding the letdown, that's the best option. Not putting yourself in that position in the first place. That's ideal, and we could focus on that tonight, but that's not what this text is about. The text is not about how to avoid an unguarded moment, although we, could, we will talk about that a little bit. We could look and say, well, okay, what are some things Noah should have done differently? He could have avoided it, but that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is the response to the unguarded moment. It's how we react to the unguarded moment. And, and we could focus on it, but on, on how to avoid it, we, we're just not going to. We'll consider instead what to do when you're face-to-face -face with one. It starts with first understanding why we have letdowns at times. See, if anybody should have been able to avoid a letdown, as I talked about this morning, Noah should have been able to avoid a letdown. He, he, I mean, he, had a, he was a man of faith. He had an amazing resume. He was the only righteous man on earth. He found grace in God's eyes. He was chosen to be the one from whom uh, the God would preserve the human race. 
He has successfully spent 120 years building an ark that an ark nobody thought was possible in a hostile culture. And that boat, it floated, thankfully, and it saved his family. The repopulation of the world came through Noah's family. He became, in essence, the father of every human being. And you would think that resume would mean Noah was past unguarded moments, but it turns out he wasn't. And if a man like Noah wasn't past an unguarded moment, who am I to think that I might be? Noah's unguarded moment was such a strange story. I believe it came because he had just come through that intense season. The most intense season anybody probably, just about anybody had ever faced. A 120-year project building an ark. Another year on the ark, wondering if his faith would become sight. Rebuilding a life after worldwide judgment. Noah gets off the ark and after 121 years, this is all that's been on his mind. and, And it's been complete obedience and constant service to God. God. And he's probably thinking, I'm 600 and it's time for me to relax. I just want to take it easy. And once the vines are producing, farmer Noah lets his guards, his guard down. Uh, he, he's, his days of preaching righteousness are over. And, and it's not like he, he's not no longer obeying God. He's doing what God wanted him to. God said, be fruitful. God said, multiply, replenish the earth. And that's what him and his sons are doing. It says in, in verse uh, 18 to, or verse 19, the whole earth through them was overspread. They're doing what they should have. But that's very often when the unguarded moments tend to strike. It comes when we're least expecting it. And the big test is over. The dependence on God is diminished because life is suddenly easier. And when our guard is down, a test comes up. And it's important that we remember Noah did not get involved in some big scandal and then fail, this was everyday life. And that leads me to some observations about the unguarded moment that I want to expound on from this morning and just kind of go through this, you know, as, as uh, logically or as we can, just to think through some of these applications. And the first thing, again, that I notice is it's usually in the course of normal life that our unguarded moments come. The sons of Noah, they went forth from the ark, Shem, Ham, Japheth, Canaan, the son of Ham, and they're just replenishing the earth. That's what they're doing. That's what they're supposed to be doing. And that's why and that's when we let our guard down. There's no pressing need. There's no reason for dependence on the Lord. It's in the normal process of life that we get tripped up. And so here's the thought. Don't look for the lion in the grass when you're running for your life. Don't look for the lion in the grass when, when you're enduring a real test. Look for the lion in the grass the next time um, things are easy, the next time things are normal. Look for the lion in the grass when you're on the way to work again, just like every other day. Look for the lion in the grass the next time you turn on television or, or you open a web browser, just something you've done many times before. Look for the lion in the grass the next time it's a church day. Not not when there's some big trial, not when there's some great test. It's in the course of everyday life that the unguarded moments tend to to rise and and trip us up. Satan never flies. Uh, Yesterday I was watching this airplane. It was flying with a big banner over Sioux Falls. I have no idea what it said, but, you know, Satan never flies with a big banner and says, tomorrow's the day, watch out, I'm coming. He never comes in with an air horn and, and blows it before he attacks us. That's not how lions operate. He waits quietly in the grass for us to get comfortable with the rest of the flock and just we're eating and we're drinking and we're enjoying the sun and things are normal. And he waits quietly in the grass ready for us to get comfortable enough that we stop being sober and we stop being vigilant. As a matter of fact, it's often for us like it was for Noah in that we don't even realize what happened till afterward. You realize Noah didn't even know. It wasn't until Noah woke up and realized what his son had done to him. That's what it says. In verse 24, Noah woke from his wine and knew after the fact what had happened. See, that's, that's how it normally works. It's usually in the course of normal life that our unguarded moments come And so I'm encouraging you, don't assume that the unguarded moment will come um, when you've got a major health trial or you've got some big problem in your life. You've got some major financial issue. No, do it when things are good. Watch out when things are normal. 
Another thing I notice here is that anything that puts us in a position to let our guard down is sinful. And I talked about it this morning, but I'm going to talk about it again because it's worth talking about. And that it says in verse 21, and he drank of the wine and was drunken. See, for Noah, this, this unguarded moment was, was magnified by alcohol. And it's the first mention of alcohol in the Bible. And I'm going to say it again. We always look at the law of first mention. And the first mention of alcohol in the Bible is not positive. And that should tell us something about God's view of alcohol and God's view of drunkenness. He does not take it lightly. And we could look at many verses that weren't against alcohol. And I could talk about the very unchristian, and and I know this is unpopular, but I could talk about the very unchristian practice of social drinking tonight and make a very easy case, really, from the Bible. But instead, I would just want to point out what I pointed out this morning. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Drunkenness is a sin before God, but anything we do, folks... Anything we do that puts us in a position to be led or controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit is also a sin before God. I mean, so, yeah, we know drunkenness is a sin because it, we're not under control of the Holy Spirit. We're not in our right minds. And, and yes, we know that being under the influence of drugs is a sin because we're not in control, under the control of the Holy Spirit. And, and when we're not sober, we're, we're not under the control of the Holy Spirit. And, and we're, we're not under control of God himself. That's never pleasing to God. But it doesn't always look like what we think. See, for instance, we may, we may be hard on a drunkard, but being led by your emotions, Emotions instead of the Holy Spirit is also a sin. We say, be not drunk with wine, don't do drugs, don't drink alcohol. And yet we, we, we as Christians, we get used to being led about by our emotions. And in many ways, that's being led by something other than the Holy Spirit. And if in our daily lives, we are led by anger, for instance... If every reaction we have is in anger and we're controlled by anger, then we are not being led by the Holy Spirit. We're being led by an emotion. And that is like being drunk with wine, wearing his excess. If we are being driven in our lives by jealousy of somebody else, that's not being led by the Holy Spirit. We're letting our emotions run us. And, and this is one that we need to hear in this day and age. If we're being led by fear, of something on the outside that could trip us up or something we're afraid of, if fear is driving our every decision, then we are not under the control of the Holy Spirit. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. I mean, I think about it when, when, I'm, when I'm sleepy. When I'm sleepy and tired, I'm not thinking about things clearly. And yet, I think that's when a lot of people get tripped up is when they're sleepy and they're not thinking clearly. And I just have to say this to the young men in our, in our church. And when you're sleepy or you're, you're not really on guard, that's a terrible time to get on the internet. And men in our church, when you're sleepy and tired and you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't sleep, the last thing you ought to do is get on your phone And I know that, I mean, that's getting kind of right down where we live. But listen, when we're sleepy, we're not on guard. And when, and there's a whole world out there now that you can have in your pocket. And if we're not careful, we'll, we're going to see homes ruined because men let their guard down in their own homes when they're sleepy in the middle of the night. Being led by anything other than the Holy Spirit is a sin. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. Be not, be not led by your emotions, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. If it clouds your judgment, it's sin. And let's not be so hard on the drunkards if we are led by our emotions. If that's our habit, we're just as guilty. Anything that we do that allows something to be in control other than the Holy Spirit is sinful according to Ephesians 5. Third principle I see here tonight is our unguarded moments both reveal and affect the character of those that we influence. See, an unguarded moment is a revealer. It's a little bit like a look behind the curtain, like in the, the, that old movie, Wizard of Oz, which, by the way, I saw a clip from that recently, and that's a creepy movie. I'm just going to say that. 
Like the Wizard of Oz, when the curtain's in place, there's a cloak hiding reality and you think something's real and it's not. But when you pull the curtain aside, it reveals what's truly there. And so in an unguarded moment is, is truly revealing our real selves. That's why it's interesting what people will say or do online that they would never say or do to your face. Because online there's a cloak, there's a curtain, and it's hiding who they are, and they, their real self comes out online, which again, I'm going to be hitting everything, might as well do it. Be careful what you post. Be careful online, not just what you're looking at, but what you're posting. And, and don't use the anonymity that comes by being online to give you license to say things that you would never say to a person's face in, to, in, in private or, or right in public to somebody else. See, for Shem and Japheth, Noah's unguarded moment revealed them as being uh, godly men. They were, they were sensitive to the immorality of their father. They weren't willing to make a spectacle of him. So they covered him up in, in, in his error. They covered up in judgment. And God blessed them for it. Uh, it says in verse 22, this is the revealer. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brethren without, which we looked at this morning. It likely means that he was laughing or making a mockery of the sin of Noah. But look at verse 23. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. So it revealed in Shem and Japheth that they were sensitive to immorality. This was not a small thing to them. They weren't just going to take lightly uh, this error in judgment, and God blessed them for it. Shem became the father of Israel, from whom would be the great heroes of the faith, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and David, and on down the line through Jesus Christ the Messiah. And this one response was an indicator that this one response to an unguarded moment was a picture of the general nature of Shem's descendants. I'm not saying every one of his descendants were godly people. I'm just saying that in general, the descendants of Shem were godly people. God blessed them in incredible ways. They were his people, the Jews. He blesses obedience. Japheth is uh, also, he enjoys God's blessings here because of his response in obedience to the situation. His descendants became uh, the Gentiles who migrated into Europe and then eventually even into America. And, and, uh, and those, we've been blessed as, as, we, as former Gentiles. I was talking to Brother Robinson about this morning and, and he was talking about being grafted in and it's in my notes here tonight. Um, that, that we've been grafted in. Israel rejected their Messiah. And so because of that, then God uh, turned away from them and opened his arms to the Gentiles and to the, the New Testament church. And we've been grafted in. We received the spiritual blessings, the spiritual inheritance of Israel because of our position in Christ. And, and I'm not saying that we have replaced Israel because we haven't. God's not done working with Israel, but for the time being, he has set them aside and he's grafted the rest of us in. And we get to enjoy all of those spiritual blessings and in many ways, when God said God, that Japheth will be enlarged and he will be blessed in the tents of Shem, we've been blessed in the tents of Shem. We've been blessed through the, through the influence of Israel. We've been blessed through the influence of Jesus Christ. We've certainly been blessed. And I'm thankful that Japheth made this decision in obedience. Noah's unguarded moment revealed the character of his two older sons, but it also revealed the depravity of, of Ham, his third son. Ham was flippant about the immorality of his father. He was the kind of person who told the joke, the dirty joke, the questionable joke, and he laughed. And we live in a society that loves innuendo. And we've got to be careful as God's people. I talked about it this morning, but we've got to be careful that we don't play that game of innuendo. Be sensitive to purity. Don't laugh at things that shouldn't be laughed at. Another view of this is what we watch or listen to or take in. Don't allow material to come into your mind, into your heart, and parents into your home that makes light of sexual sin. Don't allow material that come to come in your media to come into your home that makes light of immodesty because I really believe it's having an impact on, this, on, our genera- on the next generation of children. It's no wonder it's so pervasive considering the culture, but we can't afford to grow callous towards sin. God won't bless it. If we want to bless future like Shem and Japheth, we need to be more sensitive 
to these plights of immorality, and it's all around us. Ham also had an issue, not just with immorality, but in honoring his father, which is also a problem in our society. And parents, and it's going to get practical, just because respectful kids are rare, it doesn't mean it's impossible. And nor does it mean that it's a battle that we shouldn't fight. I mean, teach them from a young age, and we try to do it with ours. Teach them from a young age. Dad, when you say something to your son or your daughter, teach them to say, yes, sir. Teach them to say, yes, ma'am. If they're going to engage, if they're going to respond to you, teach them to do it in a respectful way. And that you say, well, that seems like a small thing, but it's training them to interact with adults with respect, with honor. And they ought to obey the first time you tell them to do something, by the way. Uh, when I was a kid, I made the big mistake in third grade of going home and telling my mom, I guess what I learned in school today. They said slow obedience is no obedience. And guess what I heard um, recited back to me the rest of my childhood? Slow obedience is no obedience. And the whole time I'm like, why did I tell her that? But you know, it's true. A, a, a child from an early age ought to be able to obey the first time they're told to do something. And you say, well, we don't want robots in our house. Well, if you, I get that. I do understand it. But it's never a bad thing to train our children that when an authority tells them to do something, they're going to obey it the first time. We're teaching them to honor mom and dad. Not only that, but they should be trained to look adults in the eye when they're spoken to. You want to teach them to have respect and, and have honor and, and show respect. They can stop and they can listen and they can converse with grown-ups from a much earlier age than many here might assume. Say, oh, he's 12. No, by the time they're 12, they should be able to talk to an adult should be able to listen to an adult. They should be able to look him in the eye. And I, I try to teach my son. Um, he's seven years old, but for a few years now, um, is, is that when somebody talks to you or says something to you, you reach out and you shake their hand and you look at him in the eye, even if you have no idea what they're talking about. Just look at him in the eye and shake your head like you know what they're talking about. It's, it's teaching him to show honor, even if he doesn't understand the conversation. I want him to respect the, the adults in his life. Don't, tell, don't sell your children short by settling for actions and interactions that don't honor the adults that they're around. By the way, and let me give you a practical mindset for our kiddos in terms of honor and respect. Whether or not you, you agree with this, I think it's good to teach our children to address adults with respect. You know, we don't allow our children or even our teenagers to address adults by their first names. And I know you might think, well, that's just, you know, that's overboard. No, I, listen, I think it's a good lesson of discipline to have them say, to instead have them say Chad and Lisa, to say Brother Chad and Miss Lisa. And we, we want them, and you might say, well, that doesn't mean a lot. I don't even really care what they call me. I get that, but I want my children to have respect for the adults in their lives. And if you choose to go by um, a last name for your children, that'd be fine as well. I don't think that's a bad thing that, you know, that you would say, no, it's brother, brother Viss or Mrs. Viss. You say, well, that's very formal. Well, I, I get it. You say, that, that's over the top. Well, I know, but, um, I, but this is something I was talking about with somebody even this week. How are they expected to address their teachers at school? You know, at school, are they allowed to call their teachers by their first names? And you say, well, my, te- my kids have really cool teachers and, and they call them by their first names. And listen, I know there's exceptions, but that's not, you, that's not normal. Nor would I, as a parent, say, okay, well, if he said you can call him by his first name, call him by his first name. I'd say, no, I want you to call him Mr. So-and-so. And I want you to call him something that shows that you respect the position. So let's not settle then for that in a church family setting. I want my children to have no doubt about ways to honor the adults in their lives. And if they're, gonna, if they're going to, um, if we're going to teach respect and honor, let's do the little things that reinforce the idea that adults are adults and not peers. Uh, when we have staff come in, you know, it'll, I, I'm going to tell our young people that it's Brother Samuel, or if you really want to be formal, Brother Hardy, which would be fine too, and Miss Brielle, not Sam and Bree. 
You can call him Salmon Bree if you choose to, but, but you'll notice when I refer to Brother Samuel or Miss Brielle, I'm going to say Brother Samuel or Miss Brielle. And you say, well, that's really weird. He's way younger than you. Yes, but I'm trying to instill an environment that shows we're trying to teach respect to the adults or the authorities or to the staff members that come here to Eastside Baptist Church. So I'm going to try my best to say, brother, and, and miss. And, and parents, I think it'd be good, a good practice for you to do the same. It might seem overboard, but let me ask you this. Do we live in a culture that needs more respect toward authority or less respect toward authority? So from where, then, is the balance going to come? Because I can promise you they're not going to watch Nickelodeon and learn how to respect their parents more. There's got to be a balance on the other side teaching them to respect their authority. And one thing to keep in mind also is that our view of our authority will affect our children's view of their authority. So we provide an example of it as well. There's obviously a lack of respect from Ham toward his father. It cost him dearly. Ham missed the blessing. His son Canaan received a curse. And you say, well, that's not fair. Ham was the culprit. But this is less a curse and more a prophecy. And that Noah was saying that the descendants of Canaan would be characterized by immorality and wickedness and nakedness. That's the idea, is that Noah was saying, what you've done here is just a small picture of what your family descendants are going to be like. The Canaanites, they were wicked people. The children of Israel, they, reading this book, they knew all about Canaan. This was Moses' way of teaching them the age-old truth that God blesses obedience and he curses disobedience. Ham uh, affected Canaan and the sins of the family multiplied and an entire race of people were known because of the, these, these sins. It really affected a whole race of people. These traits in this one influential person turn into the distinguishing mark of an entire people group. And that leads to the next thing that I notice here is that one unguarded moment can turn into a generation of bondage. Look again at verse 25, it says, And he said, Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be unto his brethren. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be a servant. There's the second time. 27, God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. So do you get the idea that Noah's saying Canaan's going to be a servant? I mean, he says it three times. Canaan became the slave of Israel when the Jews conquered Canaan. And our choices now, folks, our choices now tend to become the bondage of our children. Uh, it reminds me of, of Gideon in Judges 8. You, I mean, you remember this story. Bear with me. I haven't gone that long, so um, I could keep going if you want. But Judges chapter 8. Gideon, after, after all of his victory and after everything that he had done, he takes gold that was the spoil, and it says he made an ephod. And an ephod is kind of a priestly cloak, and it was something that looked beautiful that the priests wore, and he made this ephod. And, and, and you say, well, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that was it was an unauthorized symbol of Jehovah. He wasn't the one that was supposed to make a priestly ephod. So he makes this ephod and, and it becomes, the Bible says that all of Israel went a whoring after this ephod. They turned it into an idol and then it became a snare both to Israel and to the house of Gideon. So here's Gideon and one choice that he made became an idol and a snare to the generation that came behind him. And I just use that as an illustration of what we're even seeing right here with Canaan and Ham. If you have influence over somebody coming behind you, your habits could have a generational impact of enslavement on the next generation. Parents, your small habits today could become snares of ruin to our children. That's what the word snare means. It means a, a way of ruin. Uncontrolled anger from dad almost always becomes a snare to children. See, I, and, I, and this to my observations in life is that I believe that anger might be the most perpetuated snare from a, dad's, from a dad to their children. It, it, you can't hardly find an angry dad that eventually doesn't produce angry children. And you say, well, I don't know how you prove that, except that in Ephesians 6, what does it say? Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. 
but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I truly believe that anger, dads, we've got to be careful because you can't hardly be angry and it not get taught by your, caught by your children. But it's not the only sin or the only trait that's communicable or, or that's, that's uh, contagious. Impatience. Dads and moms, when we're driving, oh, it's hard to be patient, isn't it? But you know what I see? I've ridden with my children. I rode with one of them today. And you know what I see? I see impatience. Sorry, Liv. She did not use my driving language, though, which usually ends up with the word idiot somewhere. And I have to confess that one, too. But, you know, I mean, I see see, uh, that I, I perpetuated that. Uh, it, it's not, I mean, other sins, if, if you operate by fear, you'll probably perpetuate children that operate by fear. If you've, got, if you've got tinges of laziness or if you've got a critical spirit, well, that's such a huge one, isn't it? A critical spirit, materialism, you name it. I mean, I, silently critical parents, they may hide it pretty well, um, but it will be caught at home. And they produce, silently pr- um, critical parents produce outwardly critical children. Occasionally lazy parents tend to create overly slothful offspring. Are we enslaving our children by responding incorrectly to our unguarded moments? So listen, we all have flaws. There's not a perfect specimen among us. And if we're not careful, our responses to unguarded moments might become generational trends in our families. It it might even be in our churches. See, things that define us for years to come. So how do we respond in such a way that we see these trends start to break? How do we ensure that our failures don't define us or our children? Well, we go back to the principle from this morning. See, we have to remember a few things. And the first is that we're all prone to unguarded moments. And each of us has our own tendency to fail in certain areas. And when it comes to unguarded moments, the first thing we have to do is define where we're most likely to fail. Where's the breach likely going to come on the fence? Where's the weak spot in your life? Which trait in your character is most likely to trip you up? In what frame of mind... Are you usually when you're most likely to fail? What characteristic or habit scares you the most when you think that your children might inherit it? Those are the kinds of questions you have to ask yourself those questions, not because you can avoid every unguarded moment, but because you need a plan when they come up. You need to think ahead so that when they come up, you're ready for it. So the first thing we have to do is define where we're most likely to fail. The second thing that we have to do is make a plan for when the moment shows up. It's kind of like a fire drill in school. You know, everyone loved a fire drill because you got out of class for a little bit of time. Nobody was thinking about a fire drill like, okay, when there's a fire, I know exactly what to do and I'm ready for it. No, it's like we can go out to the playground for a few minutes. Kind of a change of pace. No, but a fire drill is a plan. And just like a fire drill, you must have a plan for when the unguarded moment happens. If I feel myself getting angry, what am I going to do before I respond? I was talking even just recently with a, with a young couple and talking about getting angry. And, and how in the book of Proverbs, there's so many, so many verses that, that warn us about it. But you know, if you feel yourself getting angry, it's an unguarded moment. And if you don't have a plan, you're probably going to say some things that you regret. Like piercing arrows or piercing swords. So what do you do? Well, if I, my plan would be, I'm going to take 10 seconds before I respond. Or 10 minutes before I respond, if that's what I need. Either way, I'm not going to say something right back in the moment. I need a plan in that unguarded moment. If I tend to sleep in instead of getting up and doing my devotions, then my plan is I will literally stand up out of my bed and I'll make my bed before I turn the alarm off. You say, that's just radical. That's a, that will be a cause for marital problems as well if you let that alarm go for too long. But listen, what I'm saying is if that's your unguarded moment, make a plan. Say, my plan 
because I have a tough time waking up when the alarm goes off. My plan is both feet on the floor, standing up, my bed is made, then I turn the alarm off. Do whatever it takes. If that's your unguarded moment, make a plan to counter the unguarded moment. I mean, we know unguarded moments are going to come. We likely know ourselves well enough to know where the weaknesses are going to come. So make a plan. Don't act like you're surprised if you have a tendency to fly off the handle when somebody cuts you off. Don't act surprised when it happens. Instead, make a plan. Pray for them instead of yelling at them. If, if you can bring yourself to do that. If I tend to be late because it takes me too long to get ready, my plan is I'm going to get dressed before I eat or I'm going to get my clothes ready the night before. You say, well, this is just far too practical. I'm just trying to help you. Uh, unguarded moments are real. And they, they get us. They trip us up. So you know where you're most likely to fail, so make a plan. And third, finally... When you do fail, don't let the failure define you. It's like the principle this morning. Noah's last act in Genesis is a failure. But God didn't define Noah by his failure. Ezekiel 14, God calls Noah righteous along with Daniel and Job. In 2 Peter 2, God, uh, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. The tent is not even mentioned. Hebrews 11, by faith Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. There's no mention of lying naked in a tent. So I have to say then that Noah's many other great moments of faith, that became the label that God viewed him through, the lens that God viewed him through, and not his one failure. And like I said this morning, God's preferred label is forgiven not failure. God often gives us more second chances than we give ourselves. So my encouragement to you tonight is don't let one act of failure undo God's act of forgiveness. Don't define yourself by a label God doesn't use and that one failure is not a death sentence. It's an opportunity to learn and make a plan and do it better the next time. See, Jesus Christ had to die on a cross because our debt was great, but his death covers all of our failures, all of them. His grace is greater than our sin. Don't let that one defeat convince you that all the other victories are nullified. One defeat doesn't unwin Christ's victory on the cross. By the way, we can't define ourselves with one failure, but we shouldn't define others by one failure either. See, I've met too many people and too many people that have allowed one failure on the part of another person in their life to color everything that person will probably ever do again. You ever met, any, some, ever met somebody like that and you know if I just say this one name in front of them, I know the kind of reaction I'm going to get. And it usually, it's not necessarily even a string of things in that person's life. It's usually one thing that happened one time years ago. One event or one season of their life and that person just cannot let go of it. And so in their minds, they have defined a person by their failure but I have to ask, if God doesn't do that for me, why would I do it to somebody else? See, God didn't define Noah in the tent. God didn't define Jacob under goatskins. God didn't define Moses striking a rock. He didn't define David on his rooftop. He didn't define Peter cursing a little girl. Those things happened and they're recorded and each of those actions had severe consequences. But God didn't write even one of those people off because of their response. Because in the moment of their unguarded moment, they, they responded correctly. God didn't write any of them off for their failure. So why would you allow a failure on somebody else's part to impact how you talk to or how you talk, talk about some other even believer right here at Eastside? Why would, if God doesn't allow your failure to define you in his mind, then why would then we would allow that 
that mentality to affect how we view some other person in our past. Don't hold them to a label that God doesn't hold you or that person to. God's more interested in our response to unguarded moments than the moments themselves. And if we respond correctly, he forgives and blesses. Aren't you thankful for that? And if not, we're on a path of severe consequences. That's the difference between Ham's response and, and, and Shem and Japheth's response. When you face an unguarded moment, folks, don't add to it by responding incorrectly. And if sometimes you might. And you might fail. At that point, make it right with God and others by humbling yourself, confessing it, and asking forgiveness, and moving forward. Embrace the second chance and proceed with God's label instead of your own. I'm just going to close with this statement, not because I think it's great, but because it required much thinking and creativity on my part. Okay, you ready? You can have a blessed future, even with big failures, because God is a God of blessing and forgiveness. I hope you saw the word play because that took me a long time. You can have a blessed future, even with big failures, because God is a God of blessing and forgiveness. And it's time for us to view ourselves like God views us in that he views not through a lens of failure, but through a lens of forgiveness. There's no reason to limit what you can do for God or how much God can bless you because you refuse to look at your, your, your past and your failures the way that he does. And he's a holy God. So let's, uh, let's make sure that we're thinking correctly. Even in a story that doesn't seem to make much sense, there's some good lessons and principles and application for us to learn as well. Let's stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.